Hi, this is Sam. Before we get onto the main topic, I wanted to do a post show about our previous episode, episode 20 with Tom Petruno. There's a couple things I want to add to that episode that wasn't brought up in regards to hyperinflation. So Tom mentioned the oil embargo of the 70s, but I think it's also for your education important to note that the hyperinflation was also caused by the U.S. going off of the gold standard. So that meant the value of our currency was unclear. And also there was the debt accrued from Vietnam. That, along with the oil embargo and many other factors, caused the hyperinflation problems that we saw that really until Jimmy Carter wasn't handled. These are the main factors, but that's not all the factors. There's also all the instability of the Nixon administration. Another thing I wanted to mention was, in doing that episode, I thought about editing out all the numbers Tom talked about, or just having Tom talk about cultural things, or political gossip. But other podcasts already do that, and that's part of the problem. The pendulum has swung too far to entertainment. The reality is, the world is made up of numbers. Politics is made up of numbers. Shit, science is made up of numbers. But we're trying to understand everything without understanding numbers. And the people who present information are trying to present it in a way so it's entertaining rather than realistic. But how can you understand anything that's going on without understanding any of the technical stuff? It's like trying to understand a fight without understanding how boxing works or how footwork works or how head movement works. Yeah, you can do that, but you don't know shit. So people form opinions because they learned it from memes and internet shows that avoid ever telling you things that might come off like math or econ or a political science class. And so people feel very confident in their knowledge because they were presented stuff, but they don't actually know anything because all the actual information was avoided to increase entertainment. The people who wanted Trump, for the majority of them, what policies were they really excited about? Policies? That's boring, right? All they cared about was how mad it would make the libs. They mistake that for actual politics because they're passionate about getting those reactions. But you're passionate about trolling, not politics. You're in it for their reactions. If you're getting all your political opinions from political lifestyle shows and someone else is reading all the wonky technical jargon stuff in these shows or articles written by journalists, who's actually getting real political information? And who's just getting political sideshows? So what's a sideshow? In events or in the circus or in a carnival, there'd be the main show and there'd be all the attractions on the side. Now, the sideshows, because they're adjacent, yes, they're still part of the carnival, but that's not the main attraction. That's not the main stuff you're supposed to be paying attention to. And right now, that's where we pay the most amount of attention, to the sideshows. And it really occurred to me when I was listening to the show, and I felt a little bit of that urge to want to change it so that it would be more palatable for most people to listen to. But that amount of change or structuring a show so that it's always just the novel stuff, the unimportant stuff, or the stuff that gets reaction, or the stuff that's titillating, it leaves people more entertained but less informed. And actually, there's so much of it how entertaining is it? It's the same old shit over and over again. That's like hearing the same jokes over and over again. Even with comedians, they're complaining that people are too sensitive, but I think what they're mistaking often is people getting sick of hearing the same old jokes and observations for people hating on comedy. You look at all the new popular comedians, they're not super sensitive folks. They're doing really weird and bizarre things, but at least it's things that are new that people aren't familiar with. I think ultimately, people want something new. They're ready for real information. It doesn't always have to be a clown show. Because what the clown show does is what we talked about in a previous episode about how people think bad. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. People mistake watching something that's long for getting actual information. Look, I could teach you all the wrong ways to box for years. Doesn't mean you learned anything. Quantity doesn't equal quality. 
there is some overlap, but that's not the same thing. So in this time of media overload, we're being more distracted and less informed. It's just junk food. And Southpaw can be junk food too. But when it is nutritious, we won't shy away from that either. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So we're talking about the final UFC on Fox. And after this, UFC will be starting their deal with ESPN. So we'll be discussing the two co-main events for this card. So let's start with Essen Barbosa versus Dan Hooker. Paul, what were your thoughts about the fight? I thought it was an interesting call out from Dan Hooker because he's the one who initially requested this matchup. When you look at someone like Edson Barbosa... He does very well when people give him range and space to work with. Famously, Dan Hooker likes to keep people in range where he could work his magic as well. So I thought maybe Dan Hooker is seeing something from Edson Barbosa that he thinks he can capitalize on. Maybe it's an easier matchup than he thinks for someone in the top 10. But stylistically, it was always going to be tough for Hooker, but he trains out of a good camp that city gym in New Zealand, and he trains with Israel Adesanya. So I thought maybe they're seeing something I don't. That's what I thought too. Is Dan Hooker seeing a stylistic matchup advantage that we're not seeing? And we saw the fight and it was nope. So if you haven't seen the fight, the way it ended was round three. It was by TKO. Correct. At some point, Edson Barbosa threw so much punishment that the ref saw enough. And he said, you know what? That's it. It was completely lopsided. It was not a competitive fight at all. They had moments when it went back and forth. And to Dan Hooker's credit, when he did well, it was all within that boxing range with punches. But when it came to kicks, it was all Edson. Outside of a few moments when Hooker looked good, Edson just teed off on him. Much like Holloway versus Ortega, it was the strike stats was all lopsided towards Edson Barbosa. So everything that people were curious about, it went exactly the way we thought it would, which is Edson Barbosa is really dangerous at this kickboxing, kicking range. And that's where Dan Hooker likes to fight. And that's what happened. Edson Barbosa was really dangerous. And Dan Hooker got lit up. Edson has always struggled against people who pressure him and who corner him and don't give him enough space. They suffocate him, whether it's through grappling exchanges or they fight him in that boxing range. Hooker's team may have put something together where they're in the boxing range more often. But when you let Edson get into his groove and get comfortable with strikes, he's a dangerous guy. Kevin Lee found that out in the third round when they fought, when he thought, okay, I'm going to kind of take my foot off the gas a little bit. And Edson just needs that couple of seconds and just a few feet, and he can throw that spinning kick out of nowhere. Dan Hooker's team and Dan Hooker himself definitely had some kind of game plan, right? They thought they were going to beat him in that range. So they both had the same strength, which is fighting from distance. And they thought Dan Hooker would still be able to beat Essen at his best range. So whatever their game plan was, it wasn't working. And when your game plan stops working, there's always one final game plan. And it's the worst game plan. I will just out-tough you because I can't beat you with any other plan. If that's what it comes down to, and the fighter is taking too much punishment, you got to really consider, like, do we let this fight continue or not? Because Dan Hooker was getting brutalized. And this isn't to, pardon the expression, but the term don't hook with the hooker comes up. When people try to fight somebody at their strengths, and Dan found out the hard way that within that range unless you have a different plan of attack where maybe you time some of the kicks that Edson does and you try to kick out the leg from under him or you use that opportunity to come in and close that range with boxing punches, if you just start exchanging, the guy who's better is going to win every time. 
It was really hard to see exactly what Dan Hooker's plan was because Edson Barbosa was in control so much of the fight. But what it looked like was trying to use level changes and feints and just throwing a lot of strikes from range and then hopefully catch him with a high kick. That's what it looked like. But by the time he was starting to throw the high kicks, it was so slow that it was so easy for Edson to block it. And I know Dan Hooker's caught people with that type of fight before where he kind of sets up takedowns and throws a lot of hand strikes to set up the high kick, but it wasn't working this time. I agree. And to top it off, Edson is also a fighter where if you don't pressure him early and you allow him to get into a groove, it's going to be really hard to regain that momentum. A horrible stylistic matchup on top of the Habibs and the Kevin Lees of the world would be someone like RDA, someone who moves you towards the fence with inside pressure. How he beautifully took down Anthony Pettis, where you never want to give him that space. You always want him on that back foot. So when you meet him in the center, you're doing him a huge favor. He doesn't need to chase you. Yeah, it looked like Dan Hooker almost wanted to play this tit-for-tat game where I hit you, if you try to hit me, I'm going to block, and then I'm going to hit you, and then you try to hit me, and I'm going to move out of the way. But it ended up just being Edson hits me, and then Edson blocks my punch, and then Edson hits me again. It was whatever he was trying to do, Edson was doing to him. And this is the first time I believe Hooker fought someone in the top 10. Because before he was fighting guys who were good, but who were right outside that top 10, top 15 mark. So he could have also found himself at a place where, well, this usually works against everybody else. But maybe sometime during the fight, he thought, oh, this is way different than what I thought would happen. And he might have gotten that confidence from sparring with Israel, where he thought, this guy's a striking veteran. He fought in glory. He's so much more decorated than Edson. If I could hang with Israel, there's no way Edson's going to catch me. This was the fight I was most curious about because of Dan calling out Edson Barbosa, because of how Dan's previous fights went, and because he trains with Israel Adesanya. Because even with him training with Israel Adesanya, I felt like that wasn't a training partner that would really help you prepare for somebody like Edson Barbosa because Israel has such a unique style. Now, Israel can try to imitate other people, but still, his timing is uniquely his. And also, he's not a high-paced fighter. He doesn't throw that many strikes, and also he likes to counter. Israel's a little bit more like Darren Till, where maybe he'll throw 12 strikes in a round, but they'll be really accurate. And so sparring with a training partner like that, who relies a lot more on counters and sparse techniques, I don't know if that was going to be what prepares you for Edson Barbosa. And that's what it looked like. It looked like he wasn't prepared. It looked like he didn't have sparring partners that could imitate Edson that well. I would also say this goes into grappling, where a lot of times high-level strikers will bring in grapplers whenever they're facing a wrestling opponent. But sometimes they don't take into consideration what type of wrestlers that they're bringing in. So you look at Phil Davis and Mark Munoz, excellent wrestlers. I think Munoz was actually an NCAA champion. But the way he did so well in collegiate wrestling was through reversals as opposed to being a takedown machine. So when he got in the UFC, he would struggle against some people that he was clearly better than within a collegiate wrestling rule set. But when it came to MMA and you had to deal with the fence and his offensive takedowns weren't that great, you saw, what? That's not what I thought he would go out. And strikers will sometimes bring in grapplers who have a completely different takedown style than their opponents, but they think, well, wrestling is wrestling. I brought in a good wrestler. It's like, no, nah, that's not enough. Like Habib is a good MMA wrestler who fights from a certain range and shoots from a certain style. But if you bring in a freestyle guy who will just shoot double legs, like maybe that probably wasn't the best guy to bring in. Or they'll bring in a submission wrestler or a jiu-jitsu guy when they're going to fight a wrestler. First of all, the wrestler is going to have much better takedowns than the jiu-jitsu guy. And secondly, once it hits the ground, they're going to have completely different techniques. The jiu-jitsu guy is going to try to take your back, where the wrestler is probably going to try to break you down and hand fight and break your hands down to get you grounded and ground and pound you. So yes, it's still happening on the ground, but it's not the same tactics. And I feel like this is the same thing. You're, you're sparring with a K1 level sparring partner, but he doesn't have the same style as Edson. Edson doesn't use his reach like Israel Adesanya does. Edson is much more explosive. 
throws much higher volumes of kicks. And rather than fighting like a sniper, well, he'll just throw one or two at a time. He'll throw a lot of combinations as well outside of that wheel kick where he'll just throw that by itself. This also coincides with Edson Barboza's move to American Top Team. And it could be that there's a lot more people with Dan Hooker's style at ATT for Edson to bring in and mimic. Whereas maybe it's harder to find people with Edson style over at City Gym in New Zealand. It was just essentially Justin Gaethje style, where he's just walking forward, eating all your punches. It's basically a punching bag. And so in sparring, yeah, there's a lot of guys like that, especially when you're good. Especially with the new guys, they're going to be more like a punching bag. So Edson is probably used to fighting guys like that. I think maybe Hooker also thought, well, Edson's on a two-fight losing streak. People have figured him out. I'm going to be that guy. He might be the easiest person to beat in the top 10. I'm the young guy who's going to take out another legend kind of a fight. I don't know if Edson is considered a legend at this point, but somebody who he thought, oh, the blueprint's out there. Why don't I just emulate it? Similar to Pettis, where, okay, at this point, it's more like an IQ test than it is an actual fight. But you get in there with Edson and you realize this guy's still really fast. And there's certain things that he throws I thought I could take, but it turns out it's hurting me a lot quicker than I thought it would. There's some guys you look at, especially Mayweather, and you think, I could take those punches. You get hit with the couple and you realize that's way harder than I thought. And then you become hesitant. You start doubting your own offensive abilities. And then without you realizing it, you become that punching bag. But Edson doesn't have that reputation of being a light hitter. I think he's known as one of the hardest hitters in the 155 division. The commentators are always talking about how, how hard Edson can hit. And he can take you out with one strike. What I think Hooker might have thought, and also a lot of the gambling sites probably thought because Dan Hooker was the favorite, was that maybe Edson was getting chinny. And that's what I thought too. It looked like Edson's chin, though, was never great was getting more and more diminished and it was just getting worse and worse. But in this fight, it looked fine. Props to Dan Hooker because his chin was like, kind of like Ortega. He was Ironhead. You just couldn't take this guy out. And it wasn't like Max Holloway punches where I discussed that Max Holloway does hit hard, but he's not the hardest puncher. Edson was fucking hitting him with bombs, like really, really hard punches that would hit Dan Hooker so bad, it would fold him over or it would knock him back, but it just wouldn't knock him out. He was like Ironhead, like a real, real Ironhead. No matter how hard your chin is, there's some things you can't protect, like your organs. If you get hit hard enough in them, your body will shut down. So when Edson threw that spinning kick right to that midsection of Hooker and he keeled over, I was like, oh, that hurt me just watching it. And you knew there's no real defense you could do other than just take it. Yeah, right from round one, Edson was hitting Hooker with body shots. Not just hooks to the body, but kicks to the body, and then a lot of leg kicks and a lot of strikes to the head. He was just working him up and down. Legs, body, head, head, body, legs. I think a promising development that we see in MMA today, as opposed to even the 2000s of when you saw the Chuck Liddells of the world, you see a lot more concentration on body work. It was always prevalent in boxing, but now more fighters are realizing, I got to go to that tank early. It's similar to stabbing a tank of gasoline. It's not going to leak all at once, but the more holes you're able to poke in it, the quicker the opponent's going to tire. I think also Edson, not just investing in the body shots, but he had seen that Dan Hooker had never been finished in any of his fights. He knew Dan Hooker had a good chin. So he thought, if I'm fighting somebody with an iron chin, I got to work that body to stop him. And it did pay off. The fight, I felt like, took 15 years off of Dan Hooker. That is not the type of fight a young fighter wants to get into that often. Maybe they needed it once in their life. But even still, this is too much. It wasn't even a dog fight. It was just a lopsided beating. And the end came through body shots. As Paul was mentioning, just kicks and then back kicks to the body that kept folding Dan Hooker over. And then finally, Edson Barbosa came in with a, I believe, a left hook to the body or maybe ribs. Maybe the ribs were already broken, but it just folded him over. And he was just, he wasn't out. He dropped because of pain. 
So who knows what kind of internal damage he has. The thing I was frustrated at, and Daniel Cormier and some of the other commentators were talking about this also, was throwing in the towel. Like, he's had enough. Like, I was screaming it. The commentators were yelling it. My wife was yelling it. I actually want to know. I want to ask, like, coaches or, like, have a panel discussion. What do you need to see to throw in the towel? Because I don't see the towel ever being thrown. Yes, you could give me examples of when people stopped it at the end of a round. But you're still waiting an extra three minutes for the round to end and then talk to them in the corner. Save them that extra three minutes. Like, throw in that towel. Three minutes, that's a whole boxing round. That's a whole kickboxing round. I don't even find it respectable when they stop it in between rounds. Because even then, you're, you waited too long. And I, I just want to know what it would take. Like, does somebody need to die? Your fighter is literally dying out there. And you're watching this happen and you still don't throw in the towel. Like, so what is it? What would it take? And basically, it seems like nothing. There is nothing that some coaches could see for them to throw in the towel. I think it's twofold. One, you talk about this before with misaligned incentives, where the coaches and the cornermen and the trainers have a financial incentive for their guys to win. If you lose, that purse that you thought was going to be doubled, if it's 20000 to fight, 20000 to win, it goes from 40000 to just 20000 And you can't rely on sponsorship money as it used to be. So they have every incentive to make sure they give their fighter the maximum amount of time to try to come back. And they point to one-off examples, the most recent being Derek Lewis versus Volkov. If you go back, there's also one of my favorites is uh, Joachim Hansen versus Kaoru Uno. When Uno was dominating the entire fight, in the last 10 seconds, he looks to his corner to see the time. He looks back and Hansen catches him with that knee. And they say, see, it can happen. You can come back and win. And the other unfortunate part of MMA is there's not enough fights that go around. So a fighter, even on an extremely busy schedule, might fight four times a year. And they have to maximize those efforts. And it's compounded by the fact that if you have even a one-win, two-loss record in the UFC, you're more likely to be on that chopping block of being cut especially if you're not on solid footing with the promotion to begin with. So they have all these things swirling in their head and it keeps them from throwing the towel. It's not like a basketball or a baseball game where if you take a loss, like, hey, it's fine, we'll come back stronger in the next game. You could be out a while. And they say, if you're going to be out a while, you might as well be out on a win. And with the added financial security of having that win bonus. I don't know if I agree with that because those fights you mentioned, or you can mention like 20 fights, these corners don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. They don't know Kyle Uno versus Joaquin Hansen. Even if there was never a comeback in UFC, they still wouldn't throw in the towel. They just wouldn't. It's, I don't know what the reason is. Maybe it's a cultural thing. They're not like having this inner monologue in their mind deliberating like, oh, I want to throw in the towel, but here's all the reasons why. They're just not going to do it. And I think part of it is just, they're just not used to doing it. There has to be some trendsetters that do it first and you see it three, four times and then everybody else feels like they've been given permission to do it. It's like the same thing with the, the low-lying sidekick. Oh, we could do that? And then you see fighters do it and it's like, oh, okay, we could, that's part of MMA. We could do that now. It has to become kind of a trend and then more people will follow along. Now, some coaches recently have stopped it in between rounds so you're seeing that catch on a little bit more. That's still kind of in between actually throwing in the towel in the middle of a fight. The towel flying into the octagon until you see that a few times, that's not going to become a normal part of it. Boxing around the world has, I think, a dozen deaths a year or something. These are three-minute rounds. So even if you can save them a couple minutes of head damage, that's huge. One of the reasons why boxing championship rounds went from 15 rounds to 12 is because that added amount of head damage was destroying fighters. So they had to get rid of it. It was, it was barbaric. It was killing these fighters. So now even in these main events, there's no title on the line and you're having them fight five rounds. So they're taking 10 extra minutes of head damage. 
And it's not like they get paid more when it's a five-round fight. So it's fucked up. It's all for our entertainment. So you look at a champion or somebody who's fought for the title a bunch of times, they've taken 10 extra minutes of brain damage more than somebody who's never fought for the title, like consistently. So it's not even about saving them in that fight. You got to think about all the damage they've already taken. And then now they're taking more. And even all the times that you see a comeback in, in MMA where they're getting dominated, MMA has so many elements to it. They might be getting dominated points-wise or wrestling-wise or jiu-jitsu-wise. But when you're just seeing it where they're getting dominated, like in a boxing sense, where it's just punches to the brain, even if they come back and win the fight, it isn't worth the brain damage. It's like, okay, this person has CTE now. Is that victory worth it? And it's not. I also agree that culture plays an important part of it. And it's not to downplay that at all. Like you mentioned with the cornermen and the trainers, a big burden of that stoppage comes from them because the fighter's not going to quit. And even within boxing culture, it's completely within the norm for the trainer and the cornerman to throw in the towel and no one blinks an eye. They said, yeah, the fighter's taking too much damage. They're not going to want to do anything but go out on their shield. There's still stigma when fighters themselves quit. You saw that recently when Nicholas Walters up and quit during his Lomachenko fight and he got shit on for it. Same thing with Rigandau when he also said, I'm done. But when the corner throws in that towel and they say, hey, this is it. We're done. It's over. No one says anything. Victor Ortiz got shredded when he quit. When he says, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So... It's that cardinal sin of boxing when the fighter can't quit. But if the corner throws in the towel, that is completely fine. So when you're throwing in the towel, you're not just protecting the fighter from themselves. You're also protecting them as a person. You're protecting them so that they don't have to make that decision. Don't make them make that decision. The fans will turn on them. They don't even know who the the trainers are. They're not going to turn on you. You can take it. You're some anonymous nobody. If you throw in the towel it's not going to make you look bad. I would also say that no fighter, to my knowledge, has gone back to their corner when they threw in the towel and says, why'd you do that? I could have come back. They eventually all come to the same conclusion. Hey, thanks for doing that. I probably wasn't going to quit on my own. And you probably saved X amount of years off my life. Another thing about boxing is maybe at the highest level, because there's so much money, you start switching around. But for the most part, boxers will be with their trainer for like their whole life or they've been with them since they were a little kid so maybe 10 15 years mma doesn't have that same relationship even before you make it to the big times you're already switching camps it doesn't have the same type of relationships that boxing has where you're with this one person for so long that they're almost like a family member or a father to you so if you do feel like a father you don't feel as scared to throw in the towel. Like, oh, if I throw in the towel, is this guy going to leave me? No, I, he's been with me for 20 years. If he's going to leave me, it's because of some other reason, right? Whereas in MMA, because people switch camps so often anyway, and the bonds are not the same as boxing, then I think also the trainers don't feel like they're, they have the place to throw in the towel. It's not like I'm his father. I can't just tell him what to do. I can't tell him the fight is over. I work for him, right? So I think that's also the downside of so much independence in MMA, where you're always looking to improve yourself. That also means always switching to greener pastures and and hopping around. Then the trainer never feels like they know you well enough to protect you like that. Let's go on to the main event. Kevin Lee versus Al Iaquinta. This is the second time they fought. And the first time Al won by decision. And in that fight, it looked like Al had Kevin Lee's number. And then years passed, Kevin Lee has been looking like a monster. And it still looked like Al had Kevin Lee's number. What are your thoughts? I think it's interesting how Ally Quinta has a very limited arsenal of tools, but he's able to maximize that tool set with what he has. And even his losses outside of the case fight where he got choked out, he doesn't necessarily look terrible. He fought Habib on a day's notice. And understandably, Habib is a little more hesitant because he's not sure how good Iaquinta is. And especially, it's not someone he's prepared for. But the first time they fought, 
Kevin Lee had a three weeks notice and he was making his UFC debut. So maybe Kevin Lee rationalized, I'm a totally different fighter. I have more notice now. I have more tape on Iaquinta. Iaquinta's been fairly inactive and I've been way more active. This shouldn't be even close. Yeah, in a lot of ways, Iaquinta looked better in this fight against Kevin Lee than in their first fight. In the first fight, Kevin Lee, even with three weeks notice, did really well. Whereas in the rematch, Al just kept figuring out Kevin Lee round by round. And Al just looked stronger and stronger. I wonder if Kevin Lee had a mental lapse when he couldn't finish Iaquinta, even though he took his back twice. He had that body triangle locked in, and then he just couldn't find a way to finish. And then he looked, I don't know if gas is the right word, but when Iaquinta got back up and then he's like, I'm still here, he might have panicked and thought, oh, that usually works. Because he opted for submission attempts, then just ground and pounding him out like he did with Edson. He went for submission attempts because of the way Al was trying to get up. And he took the back. Whereas somebody like Khabib doesn't take the back other than the Connor fight. But even there, the way he took it, it's kind of the way Daniel Cormier does it. They still kind of have a leg ride. And then when they feel like, oh, I have this for sure, I've already secured the neck or the neck is pretty exposed, then I'm going to take the back. But otherwise, I'm going to stay on this leg ride. Whereas Kevin Lee will abandon his wrestling and go straight to jiu-jitsu. So what I mean by this is if you watch Daniel Cormier or Khabib, the way they wrestle, you can have all kinds of different wrestlers. Uh, Paul was talking about that earlier. But when they have somebody to the ground, Khabib and Daniel don't go straight to jiu-jitsu. They kind of do it like Ben Askren, where they're still controlling the hips, they're leg riding, they're breaking their hands down, so their opponent is constantly being forced back onto the ground. Whereas in jiu-jitsu, once it hits the ground, you don't try to control the hands. You don't try to control the hips. You don't leg ride. You go straight to submission mode rather than control mode. And your number one priority is to take the back because the other person is trying to get up. I've taken jiu-jitsu from dozens of different people. From the opponent being on all fours, all roads lead to the back. Whereas in wrestling, it's not like that. They have a lot of different options. And it's all about breaking the person down and getting them on their back to be pinned, right? Those are both forms of ground fighting, but they're different. So with Kevin Lee, it's more opportunistic. If you don't roll over on all fours, he's going to keep you on the ground and ground and pound you. But when you try to get up and get on all fours, then he's going to try to take your back. And that's what Al kept trying to do. And I think that really gassed out Kevin Lee and his legs. And it's that Sarah mindset where he's great on the ground and people forget how wily ally Quinta can be. They just look back at the case fight and they say, like, oh, I could choke this guy out. I was like, you know, he's had a lot of time to improve that. Matt Serra, one of the things he's known for is his submission defense and his submission counters. Even back in the day against Carl Parisian, he let Carl get the arm bar just so he could reverse him and get on top. That school is very, very confident in their submission defense. And it showed in this fight, Al wasn't afraid of getting submitted by Kevin Lee. He didn't think Kevin Lee could do it and he couldn't. The way Al was protecting his neck was very interesting, where he was almost doing like a boxing style high guard, which kind of leaves him open for punches. But really, you can't choke him because he's blocking his neck with his arms. So Al was willing to eat the punches. But Al also knew that Kevin Lee will be obsessed with trying to take the neck. Kevin Lee gave up on the punches to keep trying to go for the choke. And every time he did from that high guard position, Al Iaquinta would get a two-on-one on Kevin Lee's wrist. And from there, he would stop not only the choke from the punches, and then that's how he worked his way out of that position and got back up a bunch of times. It must drive Kevin Lee's coaches crazy, knowing that I believe he has the longest reach out of any lightweight. It fluctuates from 77 to 79 or even 80 inches, but you have that much of a reach advantage over all the other lightweights, and I didn't really see it in this fight. You mentioned Al training out of Sarah Longo in New York, but Kevin Lee uses the boxing model that we've talked a lot about, and he trains out of UFCPI. But one of the problems is Kevin Lee is his own head coach. Basically, he calls guys in and he kind of orchestrates his own schedule because his own head coach, Robert Fallis, passed away. 
And it looked like Dewey Cooper, who was previously just a striking coach, is now his main coach. But other than Francis Ngannou, there's nobody else that Dewey Cooper was training in the UFC from a head coach perspective. And then I think even Ngannou got rid of Dewey Cooper as his head coach. So Kevin Lee is the only one using Dewey Cooper now at that position. And in this fight, you could clearly see you needed Robert Follis. Somebody who's watching the fight, seeing how it's unfolding, and sees the big picture and tells his charge what he needs to do. And credit actually to Dewey Cooper. Dewey Cooper told Kevin Lee to take Al down. But as far as I can tell, Dewey Cooper is not that head coach mastermind who's going to put the whole camp together and create this game plan. And I think the problem with the way Kevin Lee is doing the boxing model is he can't be his own head coach. He needs somebody outside of himself. He needs somebody from a bird's eye perspective watching the fight or thinking about the fight and all the strategy that needs to go into it and all the game planning. And that's what Al had with Sarah Longo. He's been with those guys for so long and they came out with a game plan and you could hear him in the corner. They obviously had things they had worked on and they kept telling Al very specific instructions that Al seemed like he was already dialed in with. One of the cool things that Al did was he would always go for a single leg and it was slow and deliberate, almost as if to try to get Kevin to rethink his stance. So he was shooting for a single and it didn't look like there was a lot of commitment from Al regarding trying to finish it, but he would always try to get Kevin Lee to think and he would always punch off the break. And it forced Kevin Lee to constantly do the stance switching, but there was no rhythm or science to it. Similar to in the last UFC pay-per-view, we saw with Brian Ortega, what he would do stand switching, but they just looked like they were doing it for the sake of it, as opposed to what was there a reason why you're doing it? Because Holloway would switch stances all the time, but he did it mid-fight and he did it mid-combination. Whereas with Kevin Lee, he would go from mode to mode, like orthodox, southpaw, orthodox, southpaw. And it was easier for Al to read that. He says, okay, well, I'll just pick up a single, punch off the break. Okay, I'll go back. Oh, now you're in a perfect position for that right straight. It was interesting that Kevin Lee fought most of this fight as a southpaw. Is Kevin Lee a southpaw? I've always known him to be an orthodox fighter. So that's what I remember also. So this is the first fight where I've noticed him fight the majority of it as a southpaw, which didn't serve him well. He switched back to orthodox when he was getting beat up so much as a southpaw. And even the commentators could tell that his offense from southpaw was good, but he didn't have the same defense level at southpaw. So he would just get beat up. And then by the time he switched, Al figured out, okay, you're switching and would make him pay even during those transitions. Yeah, the southpaw kryptonite has always been the right straight. And Kevin Lee just didn't have a good answer for it. He would just keep eating those over and over again. He wasn't good at southpaw. No. And you could tell somebody who's been practicing in that stance and knows all the ins and outs and somebody who just either takes too much damage or they think, well, I'll just throw my opponent off and then I'll switch. I don't know if it was Dewey Cooper's lack of MMA coaching experience. He didn't seem to be able to get a good read on Ally Quinta. And when Al would do something, Kevin Lee would just go back to the well. Because in the first round, he was hurting Al with jabs. And then he just stopped throwing it after a while. And then he was also doing well with kicks and he would hurt him and you buckle Al's leg and then that stopped all of a sudden too. No, Kevin Lee was throwing the jabs still throughout the fight. It was just that by the end, Al had figured him out so much. Even though Kevin Lee had the reach, the jabs were like really from far away. They were never going to land anyway. They were just being thrown out there, hoping that, I don't know, that Al would just walk into him. The jabs looked more labored, less sharp. And Kevin Lee would benefit so much just from throwing more feints because you could tell every time Kevin Lee threw, he threw it with the intention to hurt you as opposed to this is my feeler jab. This is my pawing jab. This is my hard jab. This is my fast jab. This is my power jab. If you go back and you watch Holloway, Holloway does a good job as was the Diaz brothers. They never let you know which jab is going to be the power jab, which jab is a speed jab. I Quinta would read Kevin Lee after a while and says like, okay, I know which jabs are coming. Yeah, if you're just starting to train MMA or you're just an enthusiast, this is a good fight to watch to understand the power of feints. Kevin Lee, I don't remember him using feints at all, whereas Al was using a lot of feints. So everything that Kevin Lee wanted to do, you could see the intent. 
Like everything is like, oh, you're going to throw a punch and you mean the punch. Whereas Al, you weren't sure if he was shooting. You weren't sure if he was really going to punch or he was a fainting. Al was really doing a good job mixing it up. I was really impressed with Al in this fight. And in the long layoff, I wasn't sure if Al had improved or not, but it looked like he, he has improved. It looked like he's been training. I don't know if he's been staying in fight shape, but one of the nice things about a long break, he doesn't have to have camps. He could just work on long-term development. So he came out in this fight a better striker than he was in their first fight. Also, they had a very specific game plan that you saw right off the get-go where Al came in and he shot for that single leg. It's one of those moves where you can see the intent right away. Like, I'm not just going for a single leg because I see it's there. I'm going for a single leg for a reason. I've been drilling this. This is part of the plan. So I was wondering how it was going to pay off. And it started reminding me a lot of Matt Serra's game plan when he fought BJ Penn years ago, which was to shoot for the single leg and then beat up BJ Penn during the breaks. Unfortunately, BJ Penn was a much better striker than Matt Serra. Whereas Al could implement that plan much better than Matt Serra could because Matt Serra, at that time when he fought BJ Penn, could barely strike at all. He was just starting to work with Longo, developing his striking. So Al was able to use it much better. And also, Kevin Lee has a different defense than BJ Penn. BJ Penn would just give you the single leg and just hop around on one foot and just start beating the shit out of you. Whereas Kevin Lee, as soon as you've touched his foot, he would turn away and limp leg his leg out. And every time he did, Al beat him up. Because Al knew that Kevin Lee wouldn't just let him hold his leg. So Al just let go of the single leg and then just use his hands to beat him up. And he caught him with a crisp spinning elbow in one of the first breaks. It definitely made Kevin Lee a lot more hesitant. And as the fight were on, he didn't know what Al's true intentions were. And you saw it, especially in rounds four, definitely in round five. When Kevin Lee just looked flustered and Al was able to pick him apart. Al was programming him the first round where he kept shooting for that. And then after that, Kevin Lee was wary of the single leg. So Al kept fainting it just so Kevin Lee would think about wrestling defense and not think about striking defense. And that's part of why Al had so much success with the strikes. And Kevin Lee looked like a much worse striker than he is just because he kept thinking about that wrestling. Another thing that I really want to compliment Iaquinta on and credit to Ray Longo is Al has that low crouch, bobbing, weaving head movement where he's never stationary in one place. It's like a snake. And he showed it against the, he showed it in the Habib fight and he did it again in the Kevin Lee fight where Kevin Lee, even though he has a huge reach advantage, Al would present his head on a platter like, here it is. He snakes back, and then Kevin's like, oh, and he doesn't have a good counter to it. He doesn't have that straight right that comes in or a counter where he would wait for Al to come back, and he just left himself vulnerable, and Al's still in that perfect position to strike back right away. In that crouch, like almost Rocky Marciano or Jack Dempsey style of crouch stance, in MMA, and especially after doing all those single leg attempts, it looked like Al was ready for a takedown. Like It looked like he was boxing from a resting stance, right? So that really threw Kevin Lee off because now he didn't know if he was slipping. He was just crouching. Is he going for a single leg? He just was confused. So he just, he just backed up because he didn't know how to read it. And that's part of the reason why Al was lighting him up so much because Kevin Lee can't put it all together yet. He's definitely still fighting in phases, resting phase, jujitsu phase, boxing phase, kickboxing phase. And when Al was fighting him where he was doing all phases at once, it overloaded Kevin Lee's brain and he didn't know what was coming. He didn't know if he should be ready to like limp leg his leg out. He didn't know if he needed double underhooks ready. He didn't know if he needed to counter. He didn't know what was happening. Kevin Lee threw away his reach advantage by attacking first. It's a strange combination that not every fighter can do, but somebody like Max Holloway can do. And Al Iaquinta can do it also, where they're leading the fight as far as chasing their opponent with the footwork. They're cutting off the cage, but they're not necessarily striking. They're just coming towards them, but always keeping a distance and also making sure that they're not lunging forward or they're not leading with their head. But it intimidates the other fighter into striking first. And that's all they're waiting for. They're counter strikers that lead. 
So they're leading, 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 waiting for the other person to strike first. And right when you do, you give up your reach advantage because you're lunging forward because you don't want to be backed up anymore. And then now you're 10 inches closer than you were before. And I see it coming because I was wanting that to come. I've been waiting for it. And especially with Al, because he's already so crouched down, he doesn't have to slip much. And the other thing was Al didn't have to worry too much about kicks because Kevin Lee only threw kicks to the head. And the way Al was crouched so low, he was missing his head anyway. Kevin Lee realized what Al was doing a little bit with his crouch stance, and he didn't know how to read it. So Kevin Lee kept trying to counter him with a knee, but his timing was all off. It shows me that Kevin Lee saw something and he adjusted by throwing the knee, but credit to Kevin Lee, almost every time that he went for a takedown, he got it. But the problem was every time he did get the takedown, when they got back up, Kevin Lee looked so much more tired. Even against Tony Ferguson, Kevin Lee is the one who gets gassed, even though he's the one initiating the wrestling. And that's one of the things that also hurt him in this fight. His takedowns are one of the best in the lightweight division. It just often ends up that his cardio gets hurt worse than yours. It's a weird combination of too much weight cutting and that style of ground control exerts a lot of energy. Just to go back a little bit, when you mentioned counter strikers who are aggressive in being able to lead and having you make mistakes, a great example I love using is early Chris Weidman. He did it against Anderson Silva. He did it against Lyoto Machida. He did it against Vitor Belfort, where he would always lead, but he never presented himself as a target. His punches would always come crisp. His head was never ahead of his knees. And it forced him to make a lot of mistakes. And it's no coincidence that he also trains from that Sarah Longo camp. And Kevin Lee reminds me a lot, not stylistically, but of a young Tyron Woodley. Somebody still trying to figure it all out, putting things together. And it wasn't until Tyron hit his early 30s that he really started to meld everything down and figure out what his strengths are. Maybe Kevin Lee's on that journey, but he's not there quite yet. And he's trying to figure this all out while being highly ranked in the lightweight division, whereas Tyron still had his early strike force days to kind of piece it all together. You mentioned earlier how Al's attacks were really simple. And it was. Simple as in the amount of tools he was using, right? The meta game, it was very complex. But as far as strikes, he had the jab and he had the cross. He would bait Kevin Lee to striking first. And Kevin Lee was in southpaw stance. So Kevin Lee was jabbing with his right. And then from there, his power hand from that stance is his left. So every time Kevin Lee followed up his jab with the left straight, Al Iaquinta came over Kevin Lee's left with his own right counter. In boxing, that's the true right cross, meaning that your right hand is crossing over their punch over their shoulder. So it's almost like an overhand where you're coming over their punch. And he kept landing that right hand on Kevin Lee over and over. Every time Kevin Lee threw a left, Al countered him with a piston-like right. And he was rocking him. And it didn't look like Kevin Lee had an answer or it came up often during his training camp. He might have had a lot of success against his training partners. And he thought, oh, this is great. I'm just going to keep using this all day. But when Al said, nah, I read it. Nah, I see what you're doing. Kevin Lee couldn't adjust on the fly. I know Kevin Lee trains a lot of boxing, but he wasn't at the depth of boxing where it's like, oh, in boxing, when you do this, I'm supposed to do this. Oh, but when you do that, I'm supposed to do this. Kevin Lee only had so many steps. When you throw that right cross, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. It looked like he didn't read that part of the manual. He didn't know what to do when they were countering you. And after a while, when Al realized that Kevin Lee didn't know how to counter any of the stuff that Al was doing, Al fought the remaining half of the last round with his hands down because there's three minutes left. Kevin Lee is not going to figure out what I'm doing in those three minutes. He'll have to go back and spend a month with a boxing trainer to be like, I was doing this. What was I doing wrong? And it was just a difference in the understanding of boxing. Al knew much more boxing than Kevin Lee did. So even though Al had shorter reach, he was just a better boxer. And that's also interesting how lately, at least with the recent fights, so much of the striking and the victor loser was about who was the better boxer, 
versus the better Muay Thai guy or the better jiu-jitsu guy or the better wrestler? I think, and this might be a trend that we've been seeing longer than I suspect, but it's almost as if the higher level strikers are opting to lose the beginning exchanges or willing to go in danger of their opponent's strengths just to data mine and figure out, well, what are you going to do? What is your reaction when I do this? What about this? Do you have an answer for certain things? They're willing to eat punches, slip counters, and be in that danger zone in order to data mine and get information. And once they figured it out, they're like, oh, this is all you know? Okay, it's smooth sailing from now on. Yeah, Al was playing a very dangerous game in round one where he was just going for the single leg, exposing his face. It was partially what you're saying about data mining. He's trying to see how Kevin Lee reacts, but also he's implanting ideas into Kevin Lee. So that first round was really close because Al was investing in the first round. He's getting information from Kevin Lee, and he's also subliminally incepting ideas into Kevin Lee about how the fight's going to go and what strategies Al's going to use. So he kept Kevin Lee guessing, whereas Al, after round one, stopped having to guess. He already figured it out. It's almost as if you had to use a non-fighting example, a conversation. You ask questions over and over again in the beginning to know what your opponent or what the other person has knowledge of. And after a while, you realize their answers are either limited or incorrect. And that's when you could start taking over and giving answers of your own. It happens often in debates when you're pressed on a topic and then you ask questions about your opponent. Do you know X topic? Do you know Y? Do you know the reasons for so-and-so? It takes time away from you being able to give rebuttals. But once you know what your opponent's answers are, then it becomes so much easier to break it down and to find flaws and to answer correctly with your own. Looking at this fight also, it made me realize how good Habib is. You mentioned earlier about how Al only had 24 hours to prepare for that fight. But if you're not familiar with the context of that fight, and even the commentators were highlighting that Al took it on 24 hours notice, what everybody means by that is Al was actually on the card and he was physically prepared to fight on that UFC. He just didn't know he was going to fight Habib for the title. And same thing with Habib. Habib didn't know that he was going to fight Al for the title. They were both trained and prepared to fight somebody for that UFC. They just didn't know it was going to be each other. So really, both people weren't prepared for each other. Both people had a 24-hour notice of change in their opponents because two of Habib's opponents dropped out. So it was supposed to be Habib versus Ferguson. Ferguson dropped out. And then it was supposed to be Habib versus Holloway. Holloway had a weight cut that he couldn't make. And so then it ended up being Al because Al was the one who accepted the fight. Al didn't have this huge disadvantage over Habib. They both had equal disadvantages. They both weren't prepared for each other. So how did Habib deal with Al? How did Habib deal with that crouch stance? He couldn't tell if Al was shooting. He couldn't tell if Al was fainting. Habib answered it with actually better boxing. He outboxed Al. And one of the answers he had to Al's crouch boxing stance that was confusing Kevin Lee was the up jab. It didn't look like Habib was flustered at all. Every time he did that, Habib feigned him for a takedown and then would jab him. So it was Habib was out feigning Al in that fight. And also, Habib, every time he took Al down, didn't look gassed. He looked fine. That's the mark of a supremely confident wrestler grappler who says, I don't care what stance you're in. You're not going to take me down. I'm just going to hit you anyways. I don't care if I'm exposed. Go for it. I dare you. I think Habib also had less reach than Al also. So we're shocked at Habib dropping Connor, but even in his fight against Al, we should have known Habib was a much better striker than we thought. It's just that it doesn't look like the crisp boxing that we're used to, but it's still fucking effective. If you're hitting your opponent or you're putting them on their ass, it's working. I think it's also worth mentioning, you look at Tyson Fury, he's not going to win any aesthetic competitions both physically and in boxing, but it works. It works. And you can't argue with results. It's interesting to me that the two main events for this UFC is 
Dan Hooker calling out Essen Barbosa and Kevin Lee calling out Al to have this rematch. And it ended up both fighters being bad style matchups. Al just has Kevin Lee's number. That's what it looked like to me. And Essen Barbosa has Dan Hooker's number. There's only so many different mimicry you can do of opponents and you want to try to emulate. And fighters, more or less, are creatures of habits. Very few can adapt on the fly. And the ones who can are usually champions. And credit to them for thinking, if something comes up, I'll be able to adjust. It's like, no, not really. If this is what you're programmed to do, and if it's what you're comfortable doing, you'll resort to it. Kevin Lee resorted back to what his strengths were, and he paid for it. Dan Hooker also paid for his sins in the incorrect range by eating all those kicks from Edson. And Dan Hooker tried to make up for it towards the end by pressuring him and really keeping that distance close. But by then, he had taken so much damage, it just didn't matter anymore. He was just half dead. Yeah, you all saw with Al when he knew Kevin Lee has nothing left for him. Like you mentioned, he kept his hands out and just kept walking forward. Like, what are you going to do? You're too tired. You're not going to hurt me. You can hit me, but it's not going to hurt. What I'll be curious about is going into the future, will Al just continue to look really good? Or does Al just look really good when he's fighting Kevin Lee? You know, both Ally Quinta and Edson had wins. I would love to see them face off and see how that goes because Edson's still ranked number five and Iaquinto is ranked number eight. That might be a good fun matchup. I think stylistically it favors Iaquinto because he has that better boxing range fighting and he's able to shoot in on takedowns against Edson. And Edson typically doesn't do well against people who pressure him. But we'll see. Maybe he has that confidence and that swagger back and he might think, I'm just going to kick Iaquinto in the head and see how it goes. And I think... Kevin Lee, we've seen his ceiling where he is still fighting every style separately and he's not putting it all together where he's fighting all phases at once. What I'd like to see with Kevin Lee is hopefully he improves in a way where he's able to do just MMA. Meaning when he fights, he's not doing boxing and then switching to wrestling to kickboxing. And then when he gets a takedown, switching to jiu-jitsu. Let's say there's five aspects of MMA. Think of it as five bullets. Putting it together means you shoot all five bullets at once, not one at a time. And that's what Kevin Lee is kind of doing. He's shooting one bullet at a time when now you've got to shoot all five at once. Because if your opponent just shot five bullets at you and you're shooting one, the other person has the advantage because they're attacking you with much more variety than you are. And also they're scrambling your mind because you could only think about one thing at a time, whereas they could think about a lot of things at the same time. I know he trains at Extreme Couture Without Robert Follis at Extreme Couture there anymore, I don't know who is his MMA coach. It can't be Dewey Cooper. I mean, it is right now. But even there, it looked like Dewey Cooper works for Kevin Lee. It's not like that I'm your coach, I'm your boss kind of attitude. It looks like Kevin Lee's the boss. And in interviews, it sounds like Kevin Lee is that type of personality. And that's part of the reason why he had problems with Robert Follis. Kevin Lee wants to be the boss. But I think for him to go to the next level... He needs to submit himself to somebody who can really take control and take him to that next level where let's just put the whole thing together because you're a great athlete. You can kick, you can punch, you can wrestle, you can do jiu-jitsu, but you're not doing it all together at once. I hope he uses these early setbacks as a learning lesson to become a future Tyron Woodley. Even though Habib is part of the AKA camp, he would benefit so much from learning from that style where they blend everything into one. It's not just one style to another, one phase to another. You know, there's a lot of good guys in Vegas where he lives right now too. You know, maybe you could find somebody there that can put it all together for him. But you can see in this fight, the gears in his head constantly switching from one phase to another. And that's not good because... Every second that it takes is a second where you have to pause. And every time you pause, you're going to get hit. And that's what was happening. And also, he was so dialed in into his wrestling responses where if Al touches his legs, Kevin Lee turns his back and pulls the leg out and pushes away that Kevin Lee is not in a position to defend any strikes. And even to the very last round, it seemed like he couldn't stop himself from doing that, even though he kept getting hit. Al wasn't really committing to those takedowns and he kept falling for it because it was just an instinct. It was a reflex and he didn't have a coach there or he didn't have his own wherewithal to be like, I got to stop doing this because he's fooling me with this. He wants me to limp leg out. 
so that he could hit me. And that's when a really good overall MMA coach comes in handy. So with all that said, the last several UFCs have been really fun and interesting, especially because they've been so tactical. You can really get a good sense of the game plans going in and the failures in the strategy rather than just athleticism. So really pay attention. And like us, when you watch it, take notes. Think of it as homework, especially when you train, because it'll make you better at thinking about these things and it'll make the whole thing more enjoyable and it'll make you better at the gym. We are in the golden age of fight information and the ability to data mine for ourselves and improve is second to none. We'd be fools not to take advantage of that. And if you're getting a lot out of Southpaw and you love it, tell your friends. The more people who listen, the more we can do more episodes, the more we can get bigger names on our show. So spread the word. 